BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Andrew McGregor, presenter of Record Review on BBC Radio 3. And in this podcast edition of Building a Library, we're about to hurl ourselves headlong into the heady world of the classical semi-opera, those restoration entertainments from the late 17th century English theatre, where spoken dramas were combined with song and dance, chorus and orchestra. The semi-opera had a second flowering in the 1690s in the hands of Henry Purcell. And while it's usually overshadowed by Dido and Aeneas and the Fairy Queen, the theatrical music Purcell wrote for King Arthur is some of his best. It's where you'll find Fairest Isle, for instance. Well, that's certainly the view of reviewer Kirsten Gibson. And as she compares recordings of King Arthur going back to the 1950s, we'll find out whether she's right. Although it stands in the shadows of Dido and Aeneas and the Fairy Queen, Purcell's semi-opera King Arthur contains some of his finest theatrical music. First performed at the Queen's Theatre in 1691, it remained one of his most performed works well into the 18th century. The great poet Dryden was the librettist and described King Arthur as a dramatic opera adorned with scenes, machines, songs and dances. Most important to this genre was spectacle, and the original production included trapdoor entrances and flying chariots. But unlike Purcell's other semi-operas, all of which were adaptations of earlier plays, King Arthur was conceived from the start as a semi-opera, and the music is tightly woven into the plot. Inevitably, recordings have to strip away the lengthy passages of dialogue, and what remains is just a series of unconnected musical episodes. The challenge is to find a recording that brings Purcell's music to life and that connects listeners with its dramatic origins. The music for Act One is introduced as the Saxons, led by King Oswald, prepare for battle with King Arthur's Britons by offering animal and human sacrifices.
Directed by Anthony Lewis in 1958, this is the earliest of the recordings. Modern strings, heavy bowing and copious vibrato all betray its age. This isn't historically informed in the modern sense, but it is historically sensitive, and Lewis's pace and poise draw out the solemnity of the moment. Trevor Pinnock, on the other hand, has all the advantages of period instruments and modern Baroque performance technique. The rich sound of the combined forces of the choir and orchestra of the English concert. When the poet Thomas Gray attended a revival of King Arthur, he described this scene as all church music. Here, Pinnock, understanding the stylistic resonances with Purcell's church anthems, effectively captures the changing mood from exuberant celebration of the sacrificial brave souls to solemn reverence of those about to acquire fame by expiring. Pinnock gets from the orchestra and chorus a lightness of touch, sharp rhythmic articulations and a real clarity of expression. The gravity gives way to a bacchanalian call to Woden's Hall in preparation for battle. Here's countertenor Ashley Stafford in John Elliot Gardner's recording. Stafford performs this song with verve and rhythmic vitality, but at points has to work hard to cut through the continuo. Nikolaus Arnenker has these lines sung by mezzo-soprano Birgit Remert in this live DVD recording staged for the Salzburg Festival, directed by Jürgen Flimm. Where shall love and dance and go? Where 
doesn't sit comfortably in Remert's register and it's coupled with tuning issues in the continuo. Taking a different approach is William Christie who recorded King Arthur with Les Arts Florissants at the low French pitch. This allows for high tenors instead of altos. rousing call to drink by Tenemark Padmore. But the sacrifices and drinking are all in vain. After battle is heard off stage with drums, trumpets and military shouts and excursions, it is King Arthur's Britons who are victorious. Joseph Cornwell in triumphant spirits with the brilliant trumpets, orchestra and chorus of Le Concert Spirituel, directed by Hervé Niquet. This performance is full of swagger, but the enunciation of the chorus sometimes lacks clarity. Returning to Christie, he reminds us of the music's theatrical origins, not least since his version comes on the back of a lavish production directed by Graham Vick for the Chatelet Theatre. This recording includes remnants of that production through vocal and other sound effects clearly related to the dramatic on-stage action. Oh, 
Trumpets and crisp rhythmic accentuation with Ian Patton's buoyant performance of the Britons' taunting song of victory. Act two opens with the Britons pursuing the defeated Saxons, while the evil spirit Grimbald tries to misdirect Arthur into perilous waters. The spirit Philadel comes to the rescue, leading Arthur to safety. Feldman as Philadel with a double chorus of soloists from the Sorbonne University Choir as the opposing spirits of Philadel and Grimbald in Jacques Grimbert's recording. While the texture and pronunciation in the choral singing is somewhat woolly, the antiphonal effect of the double chorus pulling Arthur in different directions is effectively portrayed here. Linda Perillo as Philadel and soloists from the Choir of the English Concert under Pinnock produce a crystal clear texture in their pleas to Arthur to come follow me. Purcell also provided music in Act Two for a pastoral scene as Arthur's betrothed, Emmeline, awaiting Arthur, is entertained by shepherds and shepherdesses. <laughs> 
that was the Della Choir with the King's Music directed by Alfred Della in his 1979 recording. The phrasing and dance rhythms are nicely shaped here, but it's too heavy for the lively measure. On encore better captures the sentiment. <laughs> Encore, capturing the heady lively measure and hornpipe, complete with the sound of on-stage dancing. Dryden's requirements for Act 3, the fantastical frost scene, gave Purcell the opportunity to write some of his most vivid dramatic music. Icy strings of the King's music and Morris Bevan as the cold genius, directed by Alfred Della. In this scene, Osmond, Oswald's grotesque magician, conjures a prospect of winter in frozen countries for the now captive Emmeline in an attempt to seduce her by demonstrating the power of love to thaw a frozen heart. 
The string and voice parts and surviving sources for this scene are marked with wavy lines, the exact meaning of which is unknown. In that recording, Della used tremolo strings and vocalisation to capture the cold genius and his frozen landscape. Pinnock takes another approach. uses pulse trills and the strings to create the icy effect, but his pace seems to me too fast for the cold genius. Brian Bannatyne Scott is an effective cold genius, though he suffers from some suspect tuning in this highly chromatic piece. A better pace is set by Frédérique Chauvet in her recording of King Arthur with Baroque Opera Amsterdam. Here's Peter Hendricks as the cold genius. Chauvet strips away the tremolo and trills, producing a simpler, sparser sound, but makes good use of the harpsichord interjections for shivery effects, and Hendrix gives an engaging performance, nicely portraying the freezing breathlessness of the cold genius. Christie also drops the trills and the tremolo, but sets an even more glacial pace than Chauvet, and Petri Salomar's performance is equally evocative. Standing in opposition to the cold genius is Cupid, who demonstrates the power of love to subdue winter by renewing spring. The 
That was Hannah Beardy as Cupid on Nikkei's recording. She makes a fine Cupid with her warm, rich tone, jauntily accentuated dance rhythms and triple-time lilt. In Act 4, it's Arthur who's presented with temptation. Brought to an enchanted wood by his magician Merlin, he encounters two sirens. Jill Feldman and Isabel Poulinard, directed by Jacques Grimbert as two daughters of an aged stream. They work well together here, but their performance is perhaps too staid for wily seductresses. Veronique Jeans and Hannah Beaudy, directed by Nike, attempt to entice Arthur with a more sensual performance. While the overlaid watery sound effect adds dramatic context, it's obtrusive, as is the busy and somewhat heavy continuo, which throughout this recording seems to be fighting for attention with the soloists. Christie's recording offers a better balance, with secure vocal performances from Sandrine Pio and Claren McFadden as the enticing sirens. The Siren's Song precedes one of Purcell's longest single movements, the Act 4 Passacaglia. Here it is from Nikkei's second recording, a DVD this time. It's taken from a stage production for Opera de Montpellier. Sweet, 
Some of the issues I've noted in Nikkei's audio recording are less prominent here. The continuo is better balanced with the singers, and sound effects are less obtrusive. But, as with the audio recording, the speeds are generally too rushed. In Act 5, Arthur and Oswald fight a duel, which Arthur wins. Magnanimous in victory, he invites Oswald to watch a mask, conjured by Merlin, portraying the future wealth, loves and glories of our isle, when Saxons and Britons will become one people. The mask opens with a sea storm. Aeolus appears in a cloud to calm the storm, as an island arises revealing Britannia to preside over the mask. Windy sound effects set the scene on Christie's recording, but don't distract from the music, as they're overtaken by the blustering strings and Salomar's authoritative performance. What follows is an entertainment for Britannia, as she's presented with a ragtag series of songs celebrating her island's natural resources. Flim staging has Mikhail Sharder perform Your Hey It Is Mode in the style of a rock star, singing to whoops of approval from his fans. <laughs> Your bars may fall and your hollow sleep. 
This works brilliantly as a stage performance, but musically and in terms of recording quality, it's a bit rough around the edges. Pinnock's studio recording captures the vitality of the song, but provides a more polished performance by Jamie McDougall and the choir of the English concert. Your barns will be full and your ovals eat. Come, boys, come, come, boys, come, and merrily roar out your harvest home. And merrily roar out your harvest home. From the comic to the sublime, the next piece in the mask is Purcell's famous Fairest Isle, and Pinnock makes the most of the contrast between these two pieces for ultimate dramatic effect. Nancy Argenta just about holds on to the line at this pace, but the sense of the minuet dance meter gets rather lost. Better paced is Gardner, fast enough to realise the dance meter and to support Jill Ross in maintaining the melodic line, while slow enough to remain stately. Amongst the jumbled assortment of surviving sources for King Arthur are pieces seemingly from later productions. One such piece that makes it onto over half of the recordings is the patriotic St George. These who last entered are our valiant Britons who shall by sea and land repel our foes. Now look above and in heaven's high abyss behold what fame attends those future heroes. Honour, who leads them to that steepy height, in her immortal song shall tell the rest. Wendy Rubel's bright and resplendent St. George from Frédéric Chauvet. I particularly like the inclusion of snippets of spoken text. 
There's an array of vivid interpretations of Purcell's music for King Arthur, but which comes out as my overall recommendation? As a dramatic entertainment, a semi-opera of interspersed speech, music, dance and spectacle, the DVD recordings offer the full theatrical experience. For those who want to enjoy it in its full glory, my recommendation is Flim's production, with music under the direction of Arnoncourt. This is a fantastical and compelling interpretation, brilliantly acted and full of special effects. But this modern staging, spoken in German and sung in English, won't be to everyone's taste. Some of the live performances and the sound recording quality don't always do justice to the music. So for my building a library recommendation, I'm turning to the audio recordings, and it's Christie that comes out as my overall winner. He offers greater consistency than Pinnock, Gardner or Chauvet, all of whose recordings offer some exceptional moments, but are let down by patchier performances across the solo ensemble. For me, Christie comes closest to breathing life and vitality into Purcell's music on its own terms, while connecting us with the music's theatrical origins, as in Dryden's words, a dramatic opera. Music from Henry Purcell's semi-opera King Arthur. Pure theatre in this recording from Les Arts Florissant and William Christie, breathing life and vitality into Purcell's music three centuries after it was written, which is why its reviewer Kirsten Gibson's overall building a library recommendation. You'll find it on the Erato label, and full details of that recording and Kirsten's DVD recommendation, Nikolaus Arnenkor's Salzburg Festival production on EuroArts, are on the Record Review website. You've been listening to a podcast edition of Building a Library. Next week, Jeremy Summerley compares recordings of a major choral work first performed 70 years ago, Igor Stravinsky's Mass. You can listen live if you join me, Andrew McGregor, for Record Review, Saturday mornings from 9 on BBC Radio 3, 90 to 93 FM, online and on digital radio. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can discover more music, radio and podcasts on BBC Sounds. This is a download from the BBC. For more information and terms of use, go to bbc.co.uk slash radio 3.